This is Toledo Symphony Lab, a behind-the-scenes look at the world of classical music from WGTE Public Media and your Toledo Symphony. I'm Brad Cresswell, and joining me are the Toledo Symphony's president and CEO, Zach Vasser, also artistic administrator and principal second violin, Merwin Sue, and our guest panelist today is a familiar face, or at least a familiar voice from FM 91, our morning music host, Haley Taylor. And the title of our program today is Everything You Always Wanted to Know About the Symphony But Were Afraid to Ask, or Iyat Katz Boata for short. Get it? (laughs) Okay, onward and upward. Uh, We have some great listener questions about the symphony, which we will share with everybody in a moment. But first, I want to give out that phone number again. It's a question and answer phone number at 419-418-0012. You can call that number and leave a comment or leave a question about anything related to the symphony or classical music in general, and we may just use your voice on future episodes. Again, that is at 419-418-0012. Now, the idea for uh, today's episode grew out of a project that the Toledo Symphony had a while back. It's called Music 101, and I'm going to bring in Zach Vassar to tell us uh, what that is. So Music 101 was this educational outreach opportunity that we experimented a little bit with over the past (laughs) summer, we wanted to invite our audience members into the into the symphony offices and get to meet different people from the staff and different people from the orchestra and and ask questions about music and uh, go to the source to to be in a comfortable place to learn about classical music and then each of the six sessions were more or less uh, designed around a different era of music or a different instrument family so it allowed us a chance to talk a lot about what we do, but to invite a lot of questions along the way. We probably had 40 or 50 people sign up for the course, which you never know what you're going to get. We were really, really pleased with that that turnout. We had a lot of enthusiasm along the way. What were some of the questions that people would ask you? I mean, what, what was the most common question that you heard during the course of that program? I don't know that there were common questions, but there were really unexpected questions. We realized from the outset that we, we've never really done a good job knowing what to assume. So knowing that our audience loves classical music, loves coming to concerts, but there was a, a maybe a lot of confusion as to principles of music, uh, rhythm, um, how notes are, are written and, and, and sustained and sheet music. You know, there's a lot of questions at that level. So we had, to, we had to really start from the fundamentals and then work up. And we got some great questions about how much instruments cost uh, cost and, uh, where people store them and you yeah. know, behaviors about the orchestra and the musicians that really I don't think about, but I'm happy that other people do. Yeah, interesting. Well, we have a whole queue full of questions here that we've gathered from the uh, audio phone line. So we're just going to jump right into it. I will play a question and we'll open up the, the microphones for you guys to answer it for us. And maybe we'll have a little discussion about it as well. Here is the first one. My name is Moira, and I would like to know why the concert master always acknowledged the first violinist. Thank you. <laughs> That's an interesting question. Merwin, you should answer that because you're a violinist. I'll go violinist, yeah. Um, I think uh, many times uh, the idea of the concert master as kind of the leader of the orchestra grew out of the fact that the first violins are always towards the center and the front of the stage. So the conductor, the position of the conductor actually evolved after 
the orchestra. So there were a lot of orchestras that were led by somebody towards the center of the stage or the front of the stage. Mm. And so while occasionally this would be somebody from the basso continuo section or a keyboard player or a principal cellist, more often than not, it was the concertmaster as the leader of the first violin section, simply because they were at the center of the stage and at the front of the stage, so people were able to see them. Now, how do they decide who's going to be first violin and who's going to be second violin? I mean, is it kind of like sports, or, or is there a, a different analogy that you can come up with? Well, um, Lemony Snicket, the author, um, says that the first violinists have more notes to play and the second violinists are more fun at parties. <laughs> I, I li- I've, I've always liked that. Yeah, um, which leads me to my next question. What's the deal with viola jokes, right? Mm. I shouldn't ask. I'm I feel like I'm going to. I feel like I'm going to incriminate myself. I've, I've occasionally been known to under no, a viola joke. Myself, only if you so. have a really, really good viola joke, you can you can tell it. Mm. Otherwise, we should probably plead the fifth. I think that that seems wise. <laughs> Let's go on to our next question. Sure. This comes from another caller. Let's see what uh, this person had to say. Hi, my name is Kate, and I'm wondering how the orchestra changes or adjusts for different venues. I've seen them at the Valentine and the Peristyle, but I wonder how it's different for the orchestra. Thank you. Well, can we talk about the difference between the Valentine and the Peristyle, first of all? I mean, one is one is a lot bigger, mm-hmm. but are, are the stages that much different in size? It's more what's above the stage. So at the Valentine, Valentine's a theater, so they have a lot of room for for props and and um, backdrops and things like that to drop down. So there's sixty or seventy feet directly above the stage at the Valentine. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the sound that we make on stage at the Valentine goes up, and a lot of it, fortunately, goes out. I'd love to see more of it go out. Um, if you look at the Peristyle, on the other hand, there's a ceiling above the orchestra there are those panels that sit above the orchestra and that helps push the sound out as opposed to up so just fundamentally the fact that the valentine is a is an operating theater whereas the peristyle is a functioning concert hall does have a a very different dynamic on stage but if you're on stage what you hear is very different from what you hear out in the house for both of those performance areas well whose responsibility is it then to to compensate for that, is it the conductor that that basically decides that, or do you have people that sit out in the house and listen, or how do you adjust from one venue to the next? Because you also do a lot of run out concerts, mm-hmm. I know, and mm-hmm. perform all over the place. And that's very much something that we rely on the conductor's ears to give us a sense of whether or not the a lot of the adjustments we'll be making kind of almost occur on a like just below the consciousness level. You, if you're hearing a lot of reverberation, then you'll play differently. If you're feeling like you're not getting that much back from the hall, you may push your your amplitude a little bit and the conductor will give you feedback. Is this the right move? Are you overcompensating for the hall? Um, some, some halls, it's very difficult to hear across. And so we rely on the conductor to give us this visual stability that's where we center on, so we're not only relying on our ears. But no. it's a very it can be very challenging, especially playing as many different venues as the Toledo Symphony does throughout our region. Have you ever had a, a difficulty and, and played somewhere and, and said we're never going back <laughs> to that space? I think each space <laughs> each space can can be really 
formative for an orchestra. Even a space that's really dry allows the orchestra to develop in certain ways. So I mm. think there's there's never something we can't get from a space. We just need to, you know, adjust and kind of learn from it. I think it's yeah. it's as much an educational experience for the musicians as anything else. A, a teachable moment. Perhaps. That's exactly it. Yes. Yeah. Mm. One of my favorite teachable moments for the orchestra was watching the orchestra at Carnegie Hall. Famous acoustic, one of the finest concert halls on the planet. And at rehearsal, I think the orchestra performed as if they were warming up at the peristyle, which is a very different acoustic. Mm -hmm. And I remember Stefan Sanderling was, said, let the hall do the work. Let the hall do the work at, at, at Carnegie Hall. Because right. you do just let that natural acoustic just take the, take the music out. Oh, and it, yeah. it was neat. It's yeah, really neat no, to see. I, I remember uh, being there and hearing them sounding completely different mm -hmm. in, in that hall yeah. as well. And so, the same is true now. If you go to Rosary Cathedral to see us perform the Messiah, for example, it's going to sound really different because it's so reverberant. All that marble and, and hard wood just makes a very different sound than, than a peristyle. Right. Yeah. Right. But just really quickly, I wanted to clarify. When you said that they were practicing as if they were at the peristyle, mm -hmm. what does that mean? Well, Merwin would probably have a different ex experience since he was on stage. But from my perspective, it sounded very loud. Everybody was, mm. and it was, they're performing Shostakovich. So mm. they were working really hard to make a lot of noise. And when you're doing that in such a glorious acoustic. You can kind of restrain. You can, you can lean back a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Would you add anything to that? I would actually t completely agree. It's like if you're used to, you know, driving a car that's a six-cylinder car or a four-cylinder car, then all of a sudden you're given a lot more power. Right. You, your first instinct to push on the gas pedal is maybe a little bit too much, and then you need to kind of learn, oh, wow, this accelerates a lot more easily. Mm. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, we have another question here, which is kind of related, and, and I think you almost addressed it um, within the context of your previous answer, Zach, but let's listen to this and see what you have to say. Hello, my name's Kate. Um, I have a question. If everyone in the symphony is playing his or her own instrument, how do musicians know what kind of sound the audience hears? Thanks. So I guess that would be related to uh, what the conductor does, is it like mixing it all together, <laughs> right? I mean, are you, maybe to phrase it in a different way as somebody playing an instrument on the stage, are you listening to everything that's going on around you or are you just thinking about what you're doing? Well, it was very interesting for me to switch. When I first joined the orchestra, I was the associate principal second violinist, which is just a wonderful place to sit because you are in the dead center of the orchestra, right in front of, right between the, you know, um, principal flute and principal oboe. You really get to hear absolutely everything. And there's this real central um, kind of, You've, it feels like you're in the middle of a giant clock. Even moving over one chair changes what you hear. I, I hear much more of the first violins and much less of the principal winds, even just moving that one chair over. Mm -hmm. So if, if you think, if you magnify that sense of just a few feet and what that must mean to me being able to kind of sonically empathize with an audience member, it's a really, really difficult adjustment. So, Typically, I think we try to trust what we're hearing on stage and not overly react to a particular acoustic, um, as, at least as a string player. I think you, you kind of trust your fundamentals of sound production, but we definitely do really rely on the feedback that we get from our conductor to say, okay, no, you're, you're overcompensating, you're undercompensating, so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. 
How, how important of a quality is that for a, a conductor? I mean, is that like seminal to what they do? Think about it this way. Everybody hears their recorded voice and they say, I don't sound like that because you hear it out of your own ears. You're not used to hearing it through speakers. So what the conductor has to do is to say, you don't sound like that. This is what you sound like. Mm. And um, I, I have a great memory of watching uh, one of our favorite guest conductors, Giordano Bellincampi. Uh, he frequently will leave the stage and just walk around the peristyle during a rehearsal mm. just to hear how the balances are. And that's really informative to him. He has to know that while the orchestra is playing. And then he'll walk right back up and continue conducting. Mm-hmm. Interesting. There was this really interesting video that I just watched just the other day. And it was, I think, CBC. I think it was Tom Allen on the CBC. And he was showing how important a conductor is. And he had them. They had, a, I think, a, a clarinetist and then a timpanist on each side of the stage. And they were playing bolero, uh, Ravel's bolero. And they had it from the perspective of the clarinet and with the, the how, how long it took for the, the sound of the timpani to hit her. It sounded like it was she was in tempo on her side. Then they went to the side of the timpanist, and this mm-hmm. the the time it took for the sound of the clarinet to hit him, and it sounded like he was in tempo. But then they did it from the perspective of the audience, and it wasn't in tempo at all. So to have you know the space where they're on completely two different sides of the stage, and and even just the 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 time it takes for that sound to travel, and it was, they were saying how important it is to have a conductor really right in the middle. We could probably do an entire show about why do we need conductors. Right. <laughs> One of my favorite examples, though, uh, Daniel Berenboim, uh, was at that time the music director of the Chicago Symphony, would address his board of directors or any group that he was talking to, really, and he would say, all right, so we're at a lunch. I want, on the count of three, everybody to pick up their spoon to tap their glass, to uh, take a take a bite of their ice cream, and then uh, put their fork, put their spoon down at the exact time, and then look up at me. And he'd say, one, two, three, go. And nobody could do that because mm-hmm. you have 25 people and they're all picking up their spoon and putting it down and taking a bite of ice cream at different times. I mean, the synchronization yeah. that's happening, there's so many ways to do something as simple as picking up a spoon. And then you amplify that to doing something as high-minded an art as, as performing an instrument at the greatest possible quality. And then you have... 60 other people doing that at the same time and many different instruments. It's, it's amazing. Let's move on to a, a, another question. And uh, this, again, is, is kind of related to the uh, logistics of, of making music with the orchestra. Hi, this is Clara. And my question is, why do people sit where they sit on the stage? For example, why are the flutes and clarinets always seated behind the strings? Thank you. Bye. Or, or to rephrase, why are the strings always in front? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's it's a fairly it's a fairly basic answer, and this it's about the projecting ability of the instrument. Um, instruments that can project more tend to be further away from the audience. Instruments that maybe have less ability to project are grouped towards the front. So the stringed instruments are less powerful than the brass instruments in terms of just basic decibel level. And so that's why the stringed instruments are closer to the front and the brass instruments are to the back with the woodwind instruments in the middle. But there's a lot of variability in terms of orchestra seating, and that's something that you'll see when different orchestras or different conductors come through with different ideas. Some, Some will have the double bass is ringed around the back of the orchestra to create this sense of the bass propelling everything else forward. Mm. And other other orchestras will have the violins on 
opposite sides of the stage so that you hear first and second violins as two conflicting entities as opposed to one giant blend of violins. So there's, you know, while there's this sense of a basic seating, it, it can be different from orchestra to orchestra. Okay, well, let's, uh, let's move on to another question here. Hi, my name is Courtney. Um, I was wondering, how do you choose the music you play at each concert? Um, and how, this I guess is a two-part, um, how far in advance do you plan them? Thanks, bye. <laughs> Those are fun questions. Yeah. Okay, could, so how do you choose? Who, we could who do chooses an entire, it We could do an entire uh, show just about this. Yeah. Uh, this for me is so much fun. Do you stay up at night thinking, oh, I should have, we should have done that piece yeah. instead. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So the, um, the amazing and frightening part of that statement is you do this about a year ahead of time. So right now we're sitting in September of 2017 and we're planning concerts will happen in the spring of 2019. So the 1819 season is on our minds for a planning perspective, even though we haven't even begun the 1718 season. So that means that we're trying to think about where are we going to take the audience in the 1718 season? Where do we want to take them in the 1819 season, which happens to be our 75th anniversary? And then what do we want to set up for the 1920 season? So it's a, it's a really long view, and it's a great set of discussions. And I get to have those conversations with Merwin, with our new music director, Alain Trudel. And uh, it's not necessarily a committee decision, but it's, it's a lot of dialogue. We do actually um, go to our musicians as well. We we get their sense of what are pieces that they would like to play that haven't been played that they feel would benefit the the orchestra as well. That's a key a key input as well. We are mm-hmm. we're, we're constantly tracking the history of what we've performed and trying to fill gaps in that history so that if our audience hasn't heard a particular piece in a decade, that we make sure we. We do that, and we are always taking audience suggestions into account as well. Yeah, interesting. So so people can suggest if they have an idea for a program. Do you <laughs> Just have to dial give them... 419-418-0012. <laughs> there you go. Do, do you have to give them credit? No. <laughs> so Good it's answer. interesting on this topic of programming. So I, before I was at the Toledo Symphony, I was a consultant, and I had a, I was working with an orchestra that had a huge database of um, not only the works that were performed, but how many people came to the concerts. And this is an imperfect science because let's say there are three pieces on a concert, one by Beethoven, one by Brahms, and one by Mozart. You don't know if they're coming for A, B, or C, right. but you know how many people came. But if you if you put that aside and say, whenever we perform this Beethoven symphony, it equates to that many people. You could very quickly put together a top 10 list of, if you want to load the hall, you perform these pieces. And that's what they were trying to do. But the problem with that is that you do that once, and then the next year, the data would say, perform the same 10 pieces over and over and over again. Mm. So you forget about everything else that's at the bottom of the repertoire, less frequently performed works that are magical in their own right. And you try to put together kind of a diversified uh, portfolio or uh, a plate of of really good food that might complement one another. Um, And and, and that's the exciting thing from my perspective. I just recently went to Beethoven's Misa Solemnus, which was fantastic. I was so excited that you guys were doing it. But I can't remember who I was talking to someone from the symphony who said they were kind of nervous because they weren't sure exactly how many people were going to come, but that it was Sanderling, Stefan Sanderling, who was really passionate about That's performing right. that. So I'm curious, you know, how much does the conductor, like what what is his say in picking pieces? I think that when you're working with somebody who's our music director, 
um, like, um, like Stefan was and like mm. Elena is.、Right. Um, there's varying degrees, but generally they have to be very comfortable、mm. with, with the music that they're performing. They, you don't want to put your, your conductors in a position where they're, Advocating for music they don't feel comfortable advocating for.、Um, and I think guest conductors, a lot of times we feel it's very dialogic. We'll have a sense of these are pieces that we would like to put forward. And then we, we, we have conversations with people who would be the people who would advocate well for these pieces. So if it's, if it's like, wow, we really want to have, um, works by WC or, or works by Shostakovich or something like that, then we will, We will have conversations with which, which conductors would really bring something special to the table for that.、Mm. Yeah. Have you ever、um, had to say no to a conductor who was like, I really want to do this piece? And, <laughs> and you were like, eh. I think that we've always been able to come, come to a really <laughs> wonderful、so、consensus. <laughs> We've been, I, I think. I think that there have been occasionally times when we've had to pull back. And a lot of times, unfortunately, it's a, you know, a budgetary reason. You know, there's,、right. there are some、mm. pieces that are very expensive to perform.、Mm. And Symphony of a Thousand. Exactly. Symphony、right. of a Thousand is one. Although of I can see Zach advocating for that.、So. I would advocate for it, but I'd also say don't do it. It's too expensive. <laughs> <laughs> Symphony for a hundred. That's okay. A <laughs> thousand.、Uh, I don't know.、Yes. Mahler's point eight symphony. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Well, here's another question, and this is、uh, related to the whole world of, of programming and, and how you get your artists. Hi, my name is Mary, and I'm wondering how much do soloists cost? And、um, how expensive would they be? Do you choose them by our、um, comments, or do you just say, hey, they're cool? We should have them. <laughs> Thanks.、Oh, no. Bye. Now we're, now we're really getting into the good stuff here. Because, well, I first I thought, she was, I thought she was like offering, like, how much would it be? Let me check my wallet. <laughs> Let me、well. see if I can sponsor the next solos.、Uh, really? But, I mean, I don't know if you can say how much, you know, specific solos cost, but it, they don't come cheap, do they not? No. It's a.、Uh, Think of it this way we're bringing people、mm-hmm. into Toledo, usually from across the country and sometimes from across the planet, to perform. Works that they do really well, going back to what Merwin said a few minutes ago. And you have to pay for that privilege. And there are a lot of violinists in the world, but not everybody can play the Britain violin concerto perfectly. So you have to think about where do you spend and where might not you need to spend so much to get somebody to fly in from Finland to do a performance. We actually choose our soloists a little bit differently than other orchestras. We use Haley's Rough Draft Diaries model, where the previous soloist gives us three alternatives and then we get to choose another. We choose from that. There's, there's one problem with that theory because all the soloists would choose themselves. That's the problem. Well, you eliminate that one first. <clears throat> exactly. That's one of the three choices. Symphony people, you bring. People back, right?、Mm-hmm. They become sort of favorites. Yeah. yeah.、Right. And the orchestra has a really long history of great relationships with major artists who would perform at the top orchestras. I remember when Rostropovich was celebrating his 80th birthday. I was living in Boston at the time and I saw a sign that said he was performing with four orchestras and it was something like the New York Philharmonic, the Boston Symphony, the Philadelphia Orchestra, and the Toledo Symphony. <laughs> and、uh, that just spoke to the type of relationship we had developed with Rostropovich by that point.、Mm-hmm. Van Cliburn was the same way. John Browning was. The same way Byron Janis was the same way, a lot of pianists.、Um, so, we do think about 
whom we have the relationships with and uh, where they might fit in that kind of trajectory. I want to play one more question, and uh, then we'll have to wrap things up because we're we're going to run out of time here. Hi, this is Anne, and my biggest question for you is, what is the biggest challenge facing the Toledo Symphony or any symphony orchestra today and classic music in general? Thanks. That's a big question. Uh, Yeah, it's a a good question. I mean, but it's hard to answer because there's so many things. Mm So I always think about why I'm fascinated by this industry of symphony orchestras. And, and, and the businessman in me struggles with the fact that the product hasn't really changed in 150 years. We're playing the same repertoire. We're wearing the same clothes, performing on the same stages. And if that were to happen in the business world, that company would would, would not exist anymore. But because it's an art form... And because the music is so cherished and seeing it live is fundamentally different than hearing it in a recorded environment, no offense to WGTE, mm-hmm. um, the, uh, the experience is therefore relevant. And, and I love this sort of, um, business, bu- business sense and business nonsense that, that happens in the, in, in the symphony world. So the truth is the repertoire does change. We do see new music, especially if you go down to Bowling Green, there's a wonderful new music program and a lot of great, great composers. So this year we've we've commissioned two new works this year. And you think about that is what modern music sounds like because it, 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 as we said here, hasn't happened yet and it will happen this year. So the repertoire does evolve. And as Merwin said earlier, people move around on stage. So we don't necessarily sit on the same stage in the same clothes as we used to. And um, new audiences are always coming in. So, you know, I think we try to keep a very open door for our orchestra and and, uh, we're always trying to grow and cast a wider net in our community. I'll chime in with this wonderful paradigm that I've, that I I'm borrowing from an actor and an educator named Eric Booth. And he talks about how great experiences fundamentally blend the artistic and the entertaining and, an artistic experience is fundamentally an exploration of the unfamiliar, and an entertainment experience is fundamentally an kind of an experience of the familiar. And a lot of times people see these as very divergent and kind of opposites, but he, his point of view was that a really great experience has elements of both. And I think the big challenge for our industry is that Due to, you know, plummeting education funding for the arts, um, more and more of what we do is becoming unfamiliar. What used to be something that people would see as a blend of the unfamiliar and the familiar now seems to more and more people wholly unfamiliar. Mm. And so I think, I think what we need to be able to do is continue to provide artistic experiences. And I mean those as exploratory experiences but to give people some sense of familiarity so that they don't feel wholly at sea when when hearing and seeing what we do. Well, I think part of the takeaway here with everything we've talked about today is the fact that it is a really complicated venture. There's so much that goes into it, and there's so much that goes into all of the mm-hmm. musicians that make up the whole and the conductor and all the administrative duties that have to take place as well just to make it possible and then you have everything that you've just spoken about challenge-wise that's happening. Mm-hmm. So it's all about doing more with less. It's about being creative. It's about 
finding the energy and the time to, to make things happen the way you want them to happen, and above all, to serve your audience. Well, that's about all the time that we have. Um, I want to say that uh, Toledo Symphony Lab is generously underwritten by a gift from the estate of Barbara Garwood and is a production of WGTE Public Media in collaboration with our sponsor, the Toledo Symphony. You can download episodes of this program, including the one you've just heard, as a podcast by going to our website. That is at WGTE.org. And remember, you can always check out upcoming events at the Symphony by visiting their website. That's at ToledoSymphony.com. Also, the various social media outlets on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. My thanks to Zach Vassar and Merwin Sue, and also to Haley Taylor, who helped keep us uh, honest here today. For joining us, I'm Brad Cresswell, and this has been Toledo Symphony Lab here on FM 91.